So today we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We are now on element eight, which is called Maturing in Jesus Christ by Growing in Grace. You can see the eight elements listed under Roman numeral one in your outline. And uh, you might recall just two things to help us get a little bit oriented. Um, you might recall that uh, we didn't finish element seven, and we will go back and finish that. It's just that some of the first five steps of entering Jesus Christ, as we pointed out many times, uh, the five steps of entering the Christian life, um, most Christians in America have experienced one in two. Some Christians, three. Very few Christians experience, have experienced step four. Most Christians have sort of part of step five going on in their life. So um, it's not, uh, you know, bringing people from Bible-believing Christianity into actually what the Bible teaches requires some time and, and uh, some, you know, taking Bible study a little more seriously than most people have been raised to, to do. And, and, uh, and uh, also you have to kind of examine Western culture's anti-supernatural biases and Understand that uh, if you take the miracles out of the Bible, you've taken the Bible out of the Bible. Uh, as Thomas Jefferson sought to do, he Thomas Jefferson, there is a Jefferson Bible, his version of the New Testament. He liked some of the teachings of Jesus, but he didn't like the miracles. So the Jefferson Bible is nice and thin. And uh, in reality, it's the, it's the Bible we practice today, uh, unfortunately, and we really need to get back to practicing the whole Bible. That's certainly a heartbeat of what Grace Christian Fellowship is attempting by the grace of God to, to move toward, and uh, we hope the Lord will help us move toward that further, move toward being actually Bible-practicing Christians, <coughs> and uh, that would be great. So, Lord, help us with that. Uh, this is, uh, so, this is 8B, the other kind of get started orientating statement I want to say besides the fact that we skipped about half of uh, element seven which we'll go back to is that I don't know if this is good or bad but I find myself in the in the position of we're actually teaching a series uh, the grace upon grace series at Cedarville on Thursday nights um, which we're subtitling this time around audacious grace and um, so we're actually having a lot of overlap between the 930 Sunday in the Thursday Bible studies, which uh, I apologize to Stephanie, Chris, uh, Haley, Josiah, uh, Teresa, and Jonathan, who are attending the Thursday nights faithfully. So uh, we, uh, it doesn't hurt to go over the same stuff more than once. However, frankly, you usually have to go over stuff many, many times before, A, you learn it, but biblically learning it is kind of living in it. And if you notice, the Bible's uh, orientation, like we're, we're actually not trying to teach something new. We're trying to be faithful to that which has always been taught. And uh, we want to be faithful to Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, and, and uh, the Old and New Testament. And we really aren't trying to come up with something new and, fang new, new and exciting. We're really trying to find the ancient of days and follow in his ancient established ways. So um, repeating things is not, 
is not uh, necessarily bad. In fact, Peter, in one of the last epistles in the New Testament, in his second epistle, Second Peter, he actually says three times that I'm doing, I'm writing these things to remind you of what I already taught you. In other words, I'm doing this intentionally to repeat myself. So um, one of the things that we got to get past if we're going to be a more biblical Christian is always kind of having that, I want to hear something new that I never heard before. What we really need to do is learn the basics of the faith until they become our, deep in our character, in our way of life, and that this is how we think. We think biblically, we act biblically, we're motivated biblically. So let's get into this, uh, element eight. Um, this will be our third message on element eight, and I'm calling it 8B, Attitudes and Actions for Appropriating Greater Grace. In 8A1 and 8.2, we looked at kind of redefining grace. If you look at Roman numeral three, I've listed some resources again uh, because I just had enough room to squeeze them in. <laughs> and so, you know, whether I leave them or not is going to be dependent on whether we have room for them. I always keep the outline on the front and back of a page. But if you haven't ever looked up any of those additional resources, there's a couple podcast series by John, one by me. Uh, there's books listed there, both by modern reform thinking authors and by ancient church fathers, some of the reformers, and some of the Puritans. Always three groups of Christians worth reading their books. Um, then we, uh, we, we already defined and reevaluated grace. The typical definition today is partially the definition. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. And again, uh, that's a true definition. It's just too partial. Grace is also a divine empowerment. And uh, in the Grace Upon Grace series and also what we're doing at Cedarville, we listed eight more biblical definitions of grace. We're not going to do that today. Um, but you can see that Grace Upon Grace series and see the Cedarville version. If you want the outlines, you just email. Um, at the end, we have uh, Stephen's email address always. Just email Stephen, and he'll make the outlines available to you for what we're doing at Cedarville, which is a little more complete than what we're doing on Sunday mornings. Uh, quite a bit more complete, in fact. All right, so... One of the things that we want to say about grace and that we have said about grace is grace is relational and as such, it's alive, it's dynamic, it's not stagnant, it's not changing. Grace is something we either are growing in or we're not growing in. And if we're not growing in grace, that's very problematic in the view, Bible's view of grace. If you're you know, at the same place with the Lord that you were last week, you're really backslidden. If you're at the same place you were at the Lord a year ago, that's not good. Uh, you should always be experiencing the Lord in, in ways. It, it's actually more biblically, um, more biblically accurate, you might say, to actually have the kinds of encounters with God that you look back and go, wow, was I even really a Christian then? <laughs> like, God has shown me so much more, and he's converted my heart to loving him so much more, and I've started to hate the things he hates, and I've started to love the things he loves, and my character has changed, and my understanding has grown, and my whole life is so different. Uh, looking back a year ago, I'm like, wow, did I even know the Lord? <laughs> and you should have that kind of encounter with God regularly. And if you spend time in the scriptures daily, 
and you read uh, the right kinds of books, if you cry out to God and seek him, if you experience life with a zealous group of Christians in community, you will have that kind of relationship with God where God will open up things to you all the time and you'll go, wow, I kind of thought I knew God and understood Christianity and so forth, but compared to what God is showing me now, it's a whole brave new world. Um, not, what's amazing about the process is that generally uh, things aren't contradictory, they're just more complete. And because God is infinite and we are not, that process can, can continue going for the rest of this world. I have no idea what it's going to be like in heaven. I think that we will not be omniscient because the Bible talks about na a name that Jesus has in his robe that no one knows except him. So I don't think that we'll be omniscient like God, but I think we'll see more clearly. Uh, our, probably our brains will have a great deal more capability, and we won't be clouded by sin. So that, I mean, we can't even imagine what that's like. But I'm looking forward to finding out right? <laughs> what that's like. You know, 1 John 3 says that we, it has not yet appeared what we be like, but we know that when we see him, that we'll become like him. And anyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. It should actually be part of the Christian life to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You should have a motivation of your heart that causes you to cry out, and maybe even to wrestle a little bit with frustration. and to, Like, God, I, got, I need to be more righteous. Lord, I need to be closer to your heart. I need to be more filled with your spirit. I need to be more insightful into who you are. Lord, I, I, I've, I need a lot more. That should be something that uh, is a hunger and a thirst. And we want to talk a little bit today, actually, about how to cultivate that hunger. Hungers can grow and hungers can shrink. And when, uh, sometimes when a hunger shrinks, a competing hunger will grow alongside that. And uh, we are in a battle that, you know, we think of the flesh and the devil and, and the, and versus the new resurrected life of Christ in us, walking by the spirit versus walking in the flesh. We think of that as like, uh, the victory I won, win this hour or, or today. But it, if we step back and look at it a little longer term, we're actually growing a hunger for God in the things of God or our hearts growing cold all the time. And you can be very hungry and thirsty and passionate for God. Uh, sometimes you'll come back from, say, a Christian worship seminar, conference or something, and you'll just be so drunk in the spirit. But, you know, we leak. <laughs> and and so all of a sudden it's like a week or two or three weeks later and you're like, wow, what happened to the amazing anointing and sense of God's presence and zeal and passion and thirst for the things of God I once had. That's why Jesus has to tell the Ephesian church to return to their first love. And he tells you how to measure that. He says, do the things you did at first. I always say, think about whatever time period of your Christian life off. For some people, it's often at the beginning. Think about when, when you were at your height of hunger for God and zeal for God. And what you did about that, like how much did you get, you know, alone with God's presence and turn off the football game, oh my God, no, uh, <laughs> and go to spend time in the Word or, or you know, say, say no to a social gathering so you could spend time with reading God's Word or, you know, or, uh, or get up a little early and get, your, get a little extra Bible reading in before you start on your algebra homework or whatever. <laughs> 
Um, how often did you do those kind of things, and where are you at with that today? Return to our first love has, has been a, a theme that I know I have needed God to speak to me. I th therefore suspect it might be a theme some of us need at, at times. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, grace is relational. Of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So that means we're growing in grace. You could say grace in addition to grace would be a good translation. And the, the words realize, the law is given through Moses. Realization is an experiential word. Okay, so there's this whole debate in the church today whether it should be about, uh, you know, abstract uh, doctrine or should it be about experience, and one is held up against the other. But biblically, they're mutually complementary, and must, you must be having both. You must use experiences with God to correct your understanding of the Bible, and you must read the Bible in such a way as to see where your experience with God is lacking. And both of those are a necessary ingredient of growing, you, that sort of posture. Like, Lord, as I, as I read the scripture, I'm looking in the mirror to see what's wrong. You know, I don't know about you, but I, you know, look in the mirror and I've noticed that I'm fatter than I once was. <laughs> and I'm much grayer than I once was. And I'm much thinner up here. And there's some of those things I can do something about. You know, I can brush my teeth and wash my face and, and wash my hair and, you know, and shave and trim the beard or whatever. And there's other things that I can't do much about, you know, so uh, that's just the way life is. But, um, the Bible compares reading God's word to a mirror in John in James 1, 21 through 25. And you look in the mirror to see what's the matter. So when we look in scripture, look to have God change our attitudes, our motivations, our lifestyle, our understandings of who he is. All right, so continuing on with growing in grace you know I like the verse in Ephesians 3, we're down at the bottom of the first page here, about three quarters. I love this verse, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. We talked about that last week. And uh, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the dunamis that works within us. That's the same word that Jesus used when he says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you in Acts 1-8. And it actually means a supernatural, above-human, transrational, uh, spiritual power. That's what it means. Something that is not just the power you could get by eating a better diet and working out more and increasing your natural power. Uh, it's something that only God could provide by the power of his word and the power of his resurrection and the power of his spirit and the power of the cross and the power of the gospel. Um, so we looked at the fact that grace can be diverted, replaced, or dying. So when it says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, learning to read the reverse negative, the fact that it says that means that we can come short of growing in the grace of God, can't we? And you could fall into, say, a root of bitterness. And it goes on to say that there be no ungodly person like Esau who sold his inheritance for a bowl of lentils. I had actually never heard of lentils till I uh, became a Christian. And uh, <laughs> I guess we didn't eat very, that kind of diet. Which I love beans and lentils and stuff now. It's part of, a major part of my diet. But uh, so I, I first encountered lentils when I read this story of Jacob and Esau. And 
I was then playing tennis with a wonderful Christian lady named Martha Lindner, who be, later became Martha Trimbach, and uh, was part of a church planning team that came to date with my wife and I back in 84. And so we were playing tennis, and she invited me over to her family's house for dinner, and I said, oh, great, what are we having? And she said, lentil stew. And the, I, had just, I had just heard about lentils like a week ago by reading in the Bible. <laughs> I didn't know people actually ate lentils in modern times. <laughs> And I said, I don't have to sell my inheritance for, for dinner, do I? <laughs> and she assured me that I didn't. So, uh, so I enjoyed dinner with their family. All right. Uh, Galatians 5, 4. Notice this when he says, You have become estranged for Christ, you who have attempted to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Uh, I used the New King James there because I like the word estranged. Str- uh, New American Standard says you have become, um, I'm forgetting the word now. Somebody got NESB open? Many chance. Uh, any, in any case, um, severed. I think is the is the NASB, Maybe um, the point. Estranged is a kind of a good word because uh, we've hopefully all of you have lived long enough that you've been estranged in some relationships. Like there was somebody that we grew up close, but then maybe I followed Christ and they didn't, or whatever reason we grew apart. Right. Some relationships, you're growing more close over time, and some relationships, you're growing apart. Some relationships, it's pretty good to grow apart. You know, that's kind of a major problem some people have today that they don't, you know, if you look at Luke 5, when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, then James and John, it emphasizes that they left certain relationships in order to follow Christ, and that's something we just don't do enough of in our culture today. Um. I, I do think there are times when God wants you to keep old friendships and so forth, but if you're going to follow Christ, they're going to come under new definitions and new, and new priorities and, and new ways of relating. And sometimes, if, especially if you are not a Christian, uh, sometimes people are not going to be that happy with your new direction. So that's important. Then we talked about unwrapping the gift that's a hard concept as well because we think of free gifts as something we don't earn, which is correct. However, when we give gifts at Christmas, you know, the, I always say the catch is you have to come to Christmas dinner first and enjoy this great meal and this great fellowship and so forth. And then uh, in our family, we always have one person is sort of the person who passes out the gifts. And so when you get a gift, you have to reach out and grab it. You have to unwrap it, and then every once in a while when you get done unwrapping it and you're showing it to everyone, you notice it says, some assembly required. (laughs) So it was free, but it wasn't without effort. And it wasn't without conditions of who you were with and where your priorities were and, and, and what time you were there and so forth. Likewise, when Paul says... Um, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That would sound like a total performance-based statement if the sentence stopped there. But it doesn't stop there. The reason you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling is for the Christian, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you're in Christ, you are subject to Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. 
you went through a process where God drew you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. You went through a process where that part of our fallen nature that describes man as there is none who seeks for God, no, not one. God granted you the repentance that leads to life, Romans 2.4, Acts 11.18. Both tell us that God grants repentance. If you were convicted of your sins, if you were drawn to Christ, if you confessed your sins, if you stopped excuse-making, blame-shifting, and rationalizing as a way of life and began to get real and honest before God in the, in the body of Christ, God did that. And, but you had to unwrap it as he gave it to you. And he actually motivates you to unwrap it. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I have the kind of family that... Um, they're pretty good at, uh, it's just kind of a family wise thing that we do. Uh, hopefully you'd, most families probably do this. Is Most people know each other well enough that they're getting something that comes out of your relationship. Like they know you would like this book or they know you would like this picture. And uh, of course, uh, a little cute thing they do is like when, you know, John and Emily were about to have um, Susan, but they hadn't told us yet. They uh, included a little picture frame <laughs> and then we unwrapped it and it, on, on the picture frame it said granddaughter or something like that or or I think that might have been your way of telling us it was going to be a girl or something but but it was very creative but because when you experience that kind of gifts over time guess what you look forward to unwrapping them don't you like who really hates to go to Christmas dinner with their family and start unwrapping the gifts and stuff I mean like oh man another gift <laughs> Now, it's possible to get so many gifts that you eventually get to that point. You know, we have a family joke about the great shirt Christmas that I had done so well in sales that year that I, we had gifts that we had, actually at one in the morning, because we always do Christmas on Christmas Eve, because we're too lazy to get up on Christmas morning. But uh, at about one in the morning, everyone said, I'm tired of unwrapping gifts. Let's just do the rest of them tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like... You know like when you don't want to unwrap anymore because you're that satiated that you've uh, had lots of gifts. I hope you get that way with experiencing God's presence sometimes. You know, like that part of your fight is God's anointing and flow of his worship and stuff is on me so much that sometimes I feel like, whew, we've worshiped long enough. One of the things I love about our church is I'm constantly having people come to me when they should go to John with this and say, couldn't we worship longer on Friday nights and on Sunday mornings? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I hope, so. you know, like, ask John. <laughs> I'm all for it, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I hope we uh, continue to always have it. All right, flip over. We looked at how to detect grace plus performance. This is all review. Uh, if you have condemnation and self-righteousness that you struggle with, that is a key to saying you've got performance in, the, in your, you know, remember the five, uh, five ways of appropriating works and grace. And the one correct one is grace upon grace. But grace plus works, any kind of works plus grace, any kind of performance base mixed in will cause you to think you're a better Christian than other people in your heart. If you have that kind of thing, you know that you're not walking in grace, you're walking in self-righteousness. If you're harsh when people come to you with their sins, oh my God, you did that, oh, you know, uh, you know, 
I try to always, no matter how bad it is, never act surprised. <laughs> I never try to, I always never go like, you did what? <laughs> uh, if you're harsh in judgment, if you're really looking all the time at the specks in others' eyes, but not the logs in your own eyes, that's a sign that you're walking in a performance base. Ask God to help you see that in yourself. If you have too high of expectations of other people, instead of in, a lot of in your heart about increasing your, expect, your appreciations of them. And lastly, as John brought out in his Galatians series, which is worth a re-listen to, in my opinion, it's on the podcast under Sermon of the Week. If you're a people pleaser, ask God to help you see if you're a people pleaser. If you fear what other people think of you, if you're afraid to go witnessing uh, or pass out flyers or you're overly concerned with how people think, they're just people. Sinners more than you and I, maybe, or maybe the same. I don't know. You know, only, only God knows. But what, what does it matter what they think of you? Really, what does it matter what another human being thinks of you? Um, we should probably, uh, Deanna, let's make sure next week we include uh, confession and community in the, uh, in the articles. Like, make it a bulletin insert and have somebody review that article next Sunday. Uh, because, you know, you really should... Get to a practice where you regularly confess your sins to somebody qualified to pray for you and help you and give you counsel. What does it matter what they think? If they actually have any true spirituality, as John brought out when he covered Galatians chapter 6, if anyone's spiritual, what they'll do is whoever's caught in a trespass, they'll restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, looking to themselves lest they too be tempted. Like, the reason someone is more mature in Christ is because they actually have encountered their sin deeper, and they realize that they've, they're nothing. And that's what actually makes them more mature, ironically. The more you realize the depth of your depravity, the more you'll grow in the grace of God. Which segues us into today, attitudes and actions for appropriating grace. All right, so hopefully I can get through all of this in the 20 minutes left. Since then, we have a great priest, high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Think on that sometimes. The reason I love to read the Gospels, the reason you should think about the incarnation, is Jesus received a totally human nature, every bit like us, except it had, was not subject to the power of sin. But it was subject to real temptations although he never sinned. So just like Adam had the capability of doing what he was told or not, Jesus was born with the possibility of real sins. So he had hunger. He had sexual appetites. He was tempted to lose patience with the disciples. Right? He could have used his power not to go to the cross. He said, don't you think I could appeal to my father for legions of angels? He could have had 6,000 angels in, in, uh, in the, right, the issue with, with David when he's under judgment. We notice that one angel can wipe out a whole city. In other words, Jesus could have had 
something available to him that would have been much more powerful than all the human armies that have ever been gathered and all the human bombs and all the atomic power. He had something much more powerful. He, he had to willingly go to the cross. As he said to Pilate, he said, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Like, you wouldn't have this power if it hadn't been given to you from heaven, he says, remember, or this authority. It, this is given to you for a purpose, and, and Jesus could take it away in a second if he wanted. So, that's the high priest that we have that we can go to, somebody who understands. That's important. Like, that's a major idea in the Christian faith. The, the Jesus we're crying out to for grace understands everything that you're going through. He's had people not like him for all the wrong reasons. They didn't like him so much they killed him. So far, if you're here at this message, no one has ever disliked you so much that they killed you. <laughs> However, maybe some people have liked you, disliked you so much that they've wanted to kill you. <laughs> but but, but you wouldn't be here if they carried it through. Um, you'd be at a different meeting. Um, <laughs> Let us withdraw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what we're talking about is we can receive mercy and we can receive more grace. You've got to get that. Like it's, Grace is something we grow in by experiencing God. That's 2 Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And guess how they're multiplied to you? In the experiential and intellectual, both knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. If you look at all the words that, that, uh, that go with knowledge and Jesus and grace and Jesus, they're, they're both gnosko and gnosis, which means both uh, scriptural, cognitive, mental, biblical knowledge and spiritual, heartfelt uh, uh, presence of God, manifest glory knowledge being changed into his image by, by, from glory to glory by touching his presence often and regularly. Both those kinds of knowledge of Jesus Christ is how we grow in grace. So again, 2 Peter uh, 3, 17 and 18, uh, be on your guard that you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and, and fall from your own steadfastness. So you can, right? You can fall from your steadfastness. Who's ever been a little differently steadfast in one period of time than you were in another? All right? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. A lot of how you know if you're walking in grace is if your heart wants to give the glory to God. If you're really looking for success and attaboys and, you know, bigger ministry and you know, all that kind of stuff, then you're not touching the realities of God's grace. When you touch the realities of God's grace, you will be perfectly content to be in charge of a little thing or a large thing. Because all you'll want to do is know him and be faithful. And it doesn't really matter if I have a national ministry or uh, if I have, a, you know, a ministry of three people. You know, 
the, the most important ministry I ever had was uh, in the, all my Christian life, 43 years, I've pastored different sized churches, I've spoken different sized audiences, but the most important ministry I ever had was to five people, my wife and my four kids, and speaking to them and shaping them and loving them and, and serving them was more important than every ministry I've ever had. So, real grace will cause you to want to give glory to God and be content with whatever he's given you to do. All right, so let's go uh, into four H words, which I think are inextricably intertwined. Hopefully you know by that I mean you can't separate one from the other, except we can talk about them separate, but you're either mixing them all in your walk or not. If you're lacking one, then you'll be lacking all. If you're growing in one, you'll be growing in all. All these must overlap and be employed. Now, one of the things that I want to note for you, John 10.10, Jesus talks about how he's the door to the sheepfold. I would say largely, partly because of our sinner's prayer make a decision mentality in Christianity, instead of our making disciples of the kingdom of God mentality, often we are content in our Christian life to sort of stand in the doorway, and we're not willing to go through those experiences like being baptized in the Holy Spirit, like being delivered from demons, like being discipled, like studying, like being into a community way of life, where a community way of life in the Bible involves two things every day. It involves, one, being alone with God and, and seeking Him, not just in study, but in t- until you touch His presence and you're changed by the power of His and the flow of His Holy Spirit. So you're not the same person you were before you went into your prayer closet. That's part of a biblical New Testament lifestyle. That's step five of entering the kingdom. That, should, that kind of experience with God should be your daily bread and your daily portion as a Christian. Secondly, there's, there's a, uh, a horizontal element. By the way, notice that in the cross, the vertical and the horizontal, the vertical it's, you know, is anchored in the earth and points up to heavens, which is symbolic of that first thing, that relating to God upholds the, the, the horizontal beam would just fall down without that. So one of the mistakes we tend to make sometimes is we want to do Christian community without being intimate enough with God. And so uh, uh, Deanna's going to give us a foundational article that we take from chapter 5 of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, a little little study of community, very short, very easy. But uh, the fifth chapter is called Confession and Community. But the third and fourth chapter, one of them is called The Day Alone, and the other one's called The Day Together. And in the day uh, together, he says, never let people be in community who don't like to be alone with God. One of the things you'll find often is people who like like to fellowship all the time, but really it's about the praises of man and it's about about shallow things. Sure, you know what? I always say, who wouldn't want to be in a Christian community? You know why people join fraternities and sororities on college campuses? is you were made for community. And some people want to get, you're, you're, everyone's going to want to get community somehow. Everyone. 
Every person wants to get community somehow. But do you know, but if you have it apart from the daily seeking of the presence of God, you'll have something that's fairly empty and fairly shallow. And you can kind of tell when you as you relate to people about that. You really can. But then in his, you know, the day alone, he always talks about never allow people to spend time alone who don't want to share their life in Christian community. <laughs> and that's true also. Uh, this Christian life was never meant to be done in the radically individualistic way we approach Christianity in our culture today. Where, well, I go to church on Sundays or once a week or if my Sunday church doesn't interfere with my son's soccer game or, you know, I, I whatever. You know, like, I, church is sort of a part of my life, but I don't let it get to be too much a part. But if you look in the scriptures, they daily encountered the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayer. They had a way of life that shared together. And the epistles don't make any sense apart from being written to people who live that way. Remember when Paul in Philippians says, I urge uh, Euodia and Syntyche to get along together in Christ? You know, most people don't have to be urged to get along with someone else in Christ because, you know, like, we just re handle our relationship conflicts by going to another church. Or if we want to stay in the same church, we just avoid that person. You know, they're in the choir, so I'm not going to do choir. They sit on this side, so I sit on this side. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, if you ever notice, like, people always sit with the people they know most on Sunday mornings at the dinners, right? Sit with somebody you never sat with before. Get to know someone from a different culture in a different way of life. You know, the easiest way to get to know someone is start asking them questions about themselves. Because everybody likes to talk about themselves. <laughs> really, like just start with like, so where are you from? And what are some of your interests? And how did, the, you, how did you come to Christ? And, you know, people love to talk about themselves. And in the process, you'll be getting to know them so you can serve them better. You can't really serve people very deeply if you don't know them very well. All right, so um, let's get into these four H words. Uh, humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is just a person who sees their utter depravity and their total dependence on God. Poor in spirit is the opposite of, you know, I did it my way. Or I don't need anybody. I'm an island. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the, the, the world teaches you, blessed are the assertive, the aggressive, the, the controllers, the manipulators, the power hungry, for they're, they're the one. But, but no, Jesus actually says those who are meek, who hold it out like this who don't, aren't grasping for attention, authority, a bigger ministry, like, you could have it, Lord. 
always laying it on the altar. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That is a spiritual rule. Just like there's laws of physics, like the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. Or, you know, you can't, you know, like gravity exists. You know, I recently watched uh, a show about uh, the, the September 11th bombings and so forth, because it was the anniversary of it and so forth. And um, you know, I, of course, if you're my age, you'll never forget that day and uh, so forth, and you remember so much about it. And, you know, one of the saddest parts is that people had to make the decision to get out of the room when it was filled with smoke and gasoline and so forth, and they jumped to their death. But you, they could not defy, as much as they wanted to, the laws of gravity. You know, many a, many a person on LSD has thought they could fly, and only to find out they couldn't. So you can't, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You can't thwart that law. If you're a self-advancer, if you want to hang on to your self-righteousness or your pride before God, or before other people, if you want to to say that it's not my fault, everything in our marriage is my wife's fault, you will, God will humble you. And you know what happens today is sometimes God chastises every son and daughter he receives. Some of us have been in a, a realm of chastisement so long we don't even recognize it anymore. Things like poverty, things like broken relationship. Sometimes people, God is trying to get your attention sometimes. Now, that's not to say that we don't have a theology of suffering in the godly people. You know, Joseph did the right things in Potiphar's house, and he was raised up. And then he did the right things when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and his reward was he went to jail. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we don't want to have a theology that every time you're in trouble, it's because you did something wrong. But sometimes God is actually trying to chastise you by, the, by various conditions in your life. And some of us have lived there so long, we've grown accustomed to it. It's kind of like, the, I call it the dirty diaper principle. Sometimes if you're potty training, you might just let the kid in his dirty diapers a little half hour longer or something, like so that like, they don't like it anymore. Right? You know, um, sometimes we've been living under the chastisement and the rebuke of God so, for so many years. That we, that we don't even know we are. But humble people are not blame shifters or excuse makers. They, hum, humble people see, confess their own faults. And they're not focused on the faults of their spouse or their other brothers and sisters in the church or their boss at work or the other people at work or, you know, that stupid professor I have for biology. <laughs> or that, when you hear people always complaining about someone else, you know they're not humble. Which takes us to the next thing, they're not honest. By the way, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5 are quotes from Psalm 138, 6 and Proverbs 3, 34. Honesty, are you convictable, correctable? Is there an ongoing confession and repentance as your part of your life? Do you know that we have to confess our sins and repent every day? And in fact, at the end of the day, 
there's not really enough time to confess all your sins. You have to find a way to abbreviate them or something. There's too many. You know, seriously, like if, I, if we started listing my sins, then we could roll it right out the door, down Dars, past on Vesh and Deanna's house. <laughs> I mean, like there, we would run out of a, like there's no paper rolls big enough for that. Blessed are those who mourn. The first, the, the, that's not just mourning over the pain of others. The first kind of mourning God grants you is mourning over your sin because of who they offended. Remember in Psalm uh, 32 and Psalm 51 are two of the seven penitential psalms they're called. And David says, against thee and thee only I have sinned. Now that's interesting because he committed adultery with with Bathsheba and he had Uriah killed. I'd say he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba too, didn't he? But he gets something deeper out. He, he says, in, and he's actually writing about that experience. He's not writing about his sins in general, but those specific sins. And he says, against thee and thee only I have sinned and done what's evil in thy sight. So guess what? Like if I sin against Daniel Williams, I of course need to confess to Daniel Williams But ultimately, I've sinned against God, and that's a much deeper issue because God created Daniel Williams, and he's created in God's image. And I've rebelled against God if I've done something not not according to biblical law of love toward him. Honesty is versus blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing. We become experts at blame shifting, excuse making, and rationalizing as soon as we learn how to talk. I have heard some of the best blame shifting and excuse making out of two year olds you'd ever want to hear. I had kids. My wife will sometimes confront me about blame shifting, and she'll say, you're a blame shifter, and I always say, well, it's your fault. (laughs) So, hunger. Let's talk about hunger, because we're out of time. Um, We'll talk about holistic next week, because we're going to start getting into the delivery systems of grace, of the word, the spirit, and so, and we, and uh, holistic means that you use all the potential Uh, means of God's grace. A lot of us like to pick and choose which parts of God's grace we want to avail ourselves to. Like we'll read the word, but we won't confess our sins to, you know, in the, in the church or whatever, you know, so um, hunger. So let's deal with hunger for a minute. Hunger is something you can grow or diminish and it's always growing or it's always diminishing. So you can grow your hunger and thirst for righteousness, or you can lose it. It can actually be less intense. Now, when you eat, you temporarily get satiated, right? But uh, if you're anything like me, sometimes, especially if I haven't kept uh, eating, you know, I try to eat five, six very small meals a day, and then you don't have much hunger. But if you go like 12 hours and you haven't eaten anything and so forth and somebody brings an extra large Joe's Pizza Deluxe, (laughs) sometimes I not only eat too much, but I eat too fast, right? You ever done that? 
No, no, you're all too holy. But uh, <laughs> um, so that can fill you for a moment. But when it does, it actually guarantees that the next time your hunger comes back, it'll come back stronger and harder and more intense. You can actually use the same thing for your relationship with God. Sometimes, if I've allowed my schedule to get too busy, and I've been in a season of remodeling the church building or whatever, and I haven't had enough time alone in my study, seeking the Lord, reading the Word, wrestling with God, and repenting and confessing my sins, and asking God to soften my spirit and my heart and be more convictable and all that, gradually I grow more hardened. So many times when I get back into a season of seeking the Lord more, more regularly and frequently, I'll actually go through a time period where it takes a while to start softening again. And it might take three and four and five and ten and twelve days of devotions without missing any before I start to get humble again and broken again and, and less prideful and less, and less callous, you might say. And that's something you need to be aware of. Like, if you're not experiencing the power of God in eye-opening, dramatic ways and, and realizing that His life is living through you and that kind of thing, if you're not being baptized again and again with His presence and the power of His Spirit, then set about to seek Him, but get consistent with seeking Him however long it takes. And first and foremost, learn to read the Word against yourself. As we talked about earlier, as a mirror, let it, let it read you. The Word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4.12, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it prick you. In piercing as far as joints and marrow, right, of soul and spirit, and able to judge or discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Go to the Word to find out your, how improperly motivated you are. To find out that you're not as righteous as you think you are. Go to the Word to find out, I don't measure up. One of the reasons you should always be coming back to the Gospels is the more you study Jesus, the more you look in His face, and the more you go beyond His face to His heart, See, like a baby, uh, babies go through this time period when they're one-ish or so, where they love to play with your face, right? They're like, grab your nose and stick their finger up your nose, and they put their hand in your mouth and pull it on your ears, and they love to play with your face. And it's wonderful, when, you know, especially when they're your kids, but it's wonderful with anybody's kids, <laughs> you know, to hold them and goo-goo on them and blow zerbers on their belly and tickle them and, and, you know, and talk to them and explain theology to them. <laughs> Love that. You know, I remember one Sunday afternoon after church, I did this thing with Carla's mouth, like for like two hours. <laughs> I mean, this, you know, it's wonderful. But eventually, the, you, what you have to grow up to is going beyond the face of God to the heart of God. You know, sometime between the age of 25 and 35, I began to understand my own natural father's heart. And maybe by the time I was 45 or 55, I had pretty good insight into his heart. 
And that's kind of how we walk with God. You know, it's wonderful to enjoy God's presence when you're a baby Christian. But we're on a journey to know his ways, to understand his heart, to cry over what he cries over, to laugh over what he laughs over, to have the same priorities as he has. You know, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Is that a big part of your daily motivation? Are you saying to yourself, what am I doing to get better at seeking and saving that which is lost? And to the degree you're found, to that degree you can do it. So it's not just about get out there and get something done. It's about becoming someone who, because every seed brings forth its own kind. If you lead them to Christ, do you want them to have the same kind of marriage you have? Do you want them to have the same approach to emotional uh, health and to what you do in private? As you as what you have, when you have ministry, everyone will become you that you minister to. Paul said to First Corinthians eleven one, "Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ." First Timothy, he says to Timothy, "You know, Timothy, you have known my faith, my teaching, my doctrines," and he goes on to even say, "My my." Um, uh, motivations or my, you know, my, uh, what, what makes me tick basically, is, you know, I'm paraphrasing there, but you, you know, my priorities, my values, you, you, you know, that's, uh, you, you, we want to get to, to a relationship with God where we're motivated by what he's motivated by. All right. So I'm way past the time, but I, I do want, uh, I wish I had more time to develop you can grow hungers. Fasting is about growing a hunger for God's word and for the things of God himself. And we, uh, remind me next week to even talk a little bit about fasting and to maybe review the thing of growing your hunger a little bit more deeply. You can grow your hunger before God and you are either becoming more hungry and thirsty for God today or less hungry or thirsty for God today. Amen.